Welcome back to the Vine Church Podcast. Today, we are continuing our sermon series, Seeing Jesus, exploring the first nine chapters of Luke's Gospel. If you haven't already, you can find us on YouTube at the Vine Church Heart, and we'd love to have you join us over there. Good morning, everybody. Hope you're all well. So uh, if you've, no worries if you've not heard of them, but if you've had kids in the last 10 years, you've almost certainly seen these uh, touchy-feely books, so that's not my. Um, we've got too many of them, but basically, let me explain if you don't know what they are. They all start off with a title. This one's That's Not My Narwhal, and it says its tummy is too squashy, and it's got squashy, squashy tummy. Then you move on. That's Not My Narwhal. Its flippers are too smooth. Now, we're two pages in here. There's an implication. Eventually, we're going to get to a narwhal that is my narwhal, right? You're not thinking that the whole book is going to be, no, that's not it, that's not it, that's not it. It doesn't just go out with a fizzle. The expectation starts to arise as each page turns. Maybe this one will be mine. No, this one's tail is too rough. Maybe the next page, well, its its tails aren't rough anymore, but this time its eyes are too shiny. So I think, maybe the next one. Well, again, eyes aren't shiny anymore, but now its spots are too fuzzy. Last one. That's my narwhal. Here we go. Finally found it. Its horn is so sparkly. And go back and look at all the others and say, no, they didn't quite match the standard of my narwhal because my narwhal has a shiny horn. They might be thinking, why am I I preaching from a children's book this week? Is it as inspired as God's word? No. <laughs> no, but the passage that we're looking at in Luke today is essentially this story. That's not my... Well, we'll see. And so, really, I want us to go back. I want us to go back and start at the beginning of the book. That's not my prophet. So if you have a Bible, do open it to Deuteronomy 18. I'll give you a minute to find it. But 3,500 years ago, God raised up a great man for the sake of saving his people, called Moses. Now, if you know the story of Moses, you know there is a a miraculous story, really, of how he came to be the spokesperson for God's people, how he came to be this leader. But Moses was Israel's prophet, the one who spoke what God had said to God's people. He was the, the, the mouthpiece, the connecting, the one who stood in the gap between God and the people. And Moses led God's people through the exodus, through, um, from captivity and slavery into liberty and, and took them. He himself didn't get there, but eventually to the promised land. Now, there are amazing stories about Moses. But in chapter 18 of Deuteronomy, Moses says this to the people. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. For this is what you yourselves requested of the Lord when you were assembled at Mount Sinai. You said, don't let us hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore or see this blazing fire for we will die. You hear that? They need someone to stand in the gap for them. Then the Lord said to me, to Moses that is, what they have said is right. I will raise up a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell the people everything I command him. I will deal personally with anyone who will not listen to the messages that the prophet proclaims on my behalf. But any prophet who falsely claims to speak in my name or who speaks in the name of another God 
must die. So there you have Moses giving a promise. Even when I'm gone, God is going to raise up someone like me for your sake. So immediately we've got the front cover. That's not my prophet, right? And we're going to carry on. So if we go to Deuteronomy 34 now, in Deuteronomy uh, 34, verses 10. In fact, let's, let's start in verse 9. Deuteronomy 34, verse 9. It says this. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him, doing just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Could Joshua be this prophet that God has prophesied through Moses? Could this be the one? Very next verse. There has never been another prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. That's not my prophet, Joshua. So we move, carry on through salvation history. We have the book of Joshua, and we already know this isn't it. We get to the book of 1 and 2 Samuel, where Samuel does amazing things. Samuel testifies to the false priesthood with Eli. He anoints King David, the one who would be king over God's people. Maybe Samuel is this great prophet. But no, it just doesn't seem to be Samuel either. And as you carry on, we then get to uh, the book of Kings, where you have great prophets coming up. If we turn to 1 Kings 17... We're introduced to someone who becomes a very big deal called Elijah, who's just kind of introduced from nowhere. Elijah from Tishbe, the Tishbite. And in 1 Kings 17, let's read this story together, starting in verse 8. Then the Lord said to Elijah, Go and live in the village of Zarephath, near the city of Sidon. I have instructed a widow there to feed you. So there we've got the framing. I'm just going to jump down a few verses. We're going to go to verse 17 now. So 1 Kings 17, verse 17. Sometime later, the woman's son became sick. He grew worse and worse, and finally he died. Then she said to Elijah, Oh, man of God, what have you done to me? Have you come here to point out all my sins and kill my son? But Elijah replied, Give me your son. And he took the child's body from her arms, carried him up the stairs to the room where he was staying, and laid the body on his bed. Then Elijah cried out to the Lord, O oh Lord, my God, why have you brought tragedy to this widow who has opened her home to me, causing her son to die? And he stretched himself over the child three times and cried out to the Lord, O oh Lord, my God, please let this child's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's prayer and the life of the child returned and he revived. Then Elijah brought him down the upper room, brought him down from the upper room and gave him to his mother. Look, he said, your son is alive. The woman said to Elijah, now I know for sure that you are a man of God and that the Lord truly speaks through you. Maybe Elijah is this great prophet. Certainly he does amazing things. Certainly he speaks to the false rulers in Israel, just like Moses does to Pharaoh. He speaks to the kings with God's authority. And even more clearly, I won't read this story, but in 2 Kings 2, Elijah is taking his new apprentice, Elisha, and Moses' most famous miracle, parting the Red Sea, Elijah walks along, and he shakes his cloak at some water, and it parts, and they pass before it. It seems very Moses-like. Maybe this is the one. But then, Elisha comes along, and he receives a double portion. 
is this the great prophet? And so I'm, I'm sure by now you're kind of getting the drift that God has given this promise and then it seems to just be over hundreds and hundreds of years, just previews seem to come but don't quite match up to that original promise. They don't seem to fit with the grandeur of the promise that God has given, that one like Moses is coming to bring his people through a new exodus. And really God has promised it to say, as good as Moses is, as good as it is that you've left Egypt and come to where you are now, this isn't good enough. I have bigger plans for you and so I'll raise one up. So when we keep getting smaller prophets, but then nothing seems to really happen, you kind of wonder what's going on. Is God kind of sending these partial fulfillments kind of to, to tease them? To go, ah, you thought you were getting a great prophet, not really. Is it kind of like Goldilocks, where Goldilocks knows what she wants in her head, but then she gets to the hot one, it's too hot, she gets to the cold one, it's too cold, and God's kind of just giving them the wrong one on purpose, holding back the one that's just right. But actually, what I'd say is God's intent in showing in doing these partial fulfillments, these mini previews, is to show his commitment to answering that original promise. He wants to show his people that even though it's not yet, he has not forgotten. And so he sent someone. I don't know if um, I don't know if any of you watch Friends or have watched Friends, but there's this episode where uh, one of the characters, Chandler, is going to propose to his girlfriend. And so to throw her off the scent, he basically acts as though marriage just isn't his thing. She's desperate to get married. And so um, he gets his friend. To, there's this classic scene where his friend says to Monica, his girlfriend, he's not likely to take a mate. Um, and uh, the point is, she then ends up thinking, he doesn't want to marry me. And she, she is almost at the point of leaving him. Now, the point there is, if you've, made, if you've got something in the future, it's not good to just go completely kind of, cold turkey until you get to that point. You give previews and indications and you kind of give little hints to use that example. If you're going to propose to someone, it's probably quite good if they know it's coming a little bit. God is kind of giving these partial fulfillments to show his commitment to answering this promise. And so now we move, let's move to Luke. Let's move to Luke 7. With all this background, do you want us to read this story? Luke 7, verses 11 to 17. If we all get there, and then I'll read. So, Luke 7, 11 to 17 says this. Soon afterwards, Jesus went with his disciples to the village of Nain, and a large crowd followed him. A funeral procession was coming out as he approached the village gate. A young man who had died was this widow's only son, and a large crowd from the village was with her. When Jesus saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion. Don't cry, he said. Then he walked over to the coffin and touched it, and the bearers stopped. Young man, he said, I tell you, get up. Then the dead boy sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Great fear swept the crowd, and they praised God, saying, A mighty prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people today. And the news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding countryside. Now, this picture obviously is coming in the context of everything else that we've read about Luke, uh, about Jesus in Luke's gospel. But nonetheless, this seems to be a very specific scene because we've just seen it from Elijah, the one who we thought was the prophet like Moses, 
in 1 Kings 17. Jesus has come to fulfill that prophecy, to be the great prophet. Jesus almost mirrors this scene, but there's a few key differences. One of the biggest ones I want us to look at is, well, two big ones to look at. The first one, what does Elijah say when this boy's died? God, please raise him. God, please do this for this woman. What does Jesus say? I tell you, get up. The authority is completely different. Elijah has to ask God to do this. Jesus is God in the flesh coming to do it from his own power. He is already qualified to be the great prophet, the one who thousands of years have waited for. And this miracle isn't just random. He's not just thought, oh, I may as well raise someone from the dead. He's using this scene intentionally to show us who he is. The people then cry out, a great prophet has risen among us. The narrative, the promise, the expectation for thousands of years has now found its fulfillment in Jesus. We've got to the final page and it says, that's my prophet. His name is so mighty. The second key difference, and this is something I really want us to focus on in this passage between Elijah and Jesus, is this. Elijah has, has, it doesn't say anything about how he feels towards the, the widow. It doesn't say anything towards how he feels about the situation. What it does say is, I'm staying with this woman and you've killed her son. Please can you raise him up? Now, I'm not dissing Elijah, but look at what Jesus says. Look at what it says here. When the Lord saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion. Don't cry, he said. I just want us to take a minute to think about the character of Jesus, the character of the great prophet. We've got thousands of years of expectation here. We've got this amazing prophecy that thousands of years later is finally being fulfilled. And where does Jesus choose to kind of show this scene most powerfully? Is it in the, the hall of kings? Is it among the people who would notice? Or is it in a small town with a woman who's lost her son, with him overflowing with compassion? One of the things that strikes me when we read biblical stories is that we kind of use the phrase, the widow, as just a title. That is the woman who lost her husband. One of the things that I've kind of really reflected on recently as I've been reading biblical stories like the book of Ruth, for instance, is actually these are real people. And if we knew, if we had a friend who had lost her husband only a few years ago, and then she rings us up and says, my son, my only son has just died. How do, you, how do we think about it? We don't just say, oh, I've got a friend who's a widow. It's a really sad situation. It's a moving situation. The people here are crying. In fact, a, a thing in the ancient world they used to do was that people would, the family would pay people to kind of overemphasize their tears and make such a scene so that the mother's genuine tears weren't made a spectacle. She could cry in peace without people constantly badgering her. It's a fun little thing, but there's this loud noise, this funeral procession, and Jesus sees her, and his heart goes out to her, this woman who has lost her son. She's lost everything she has. Now, I realize that today, being a widow is obviously really sad, but it doesn't really have any uh, often economic implications. Often it does, but not often. 
back here to lose your husband means basically you've lost any income. To then lose your son, who is the only hope you have of an income. This is a woman who's not only going through a horrible situation, but now her future is in jeopardy. She may well be begging and starving within the next few months. But Jesus sees her. And he's not just this great prophet who's imbued with power. He's not just this great prophet who has the ability, but he's also the one who comes with compassion, whose heart overflows for her, who sees her. And he comes to her as sad and broken and worried as she is. He doesn't chastise her. He doesn't uh, tell her to pull herself together because like, look what I can do. He doesn't say, don't you know who I am? He just comes to her. You can kind of imagine the scene, putting his hand on her and says, don't cry. He doesn't need to say, look, watch what I'm about to do. He just reassures her and comes to her son and does this amazing miracle. That's the Jesus. This is the great prophet who we claim as our Lord, the one who stands to us, sees our brokenness, sees our pain, for whatever reason, puts his hand on us and says, don't cry. The surprising thing is this scene is that the thousands of years of expectation, the, the promise that we're waiting for finds its fulfillment in the most intimate of occasions. But we also find something about Jesus' character, his personhood in this. You see, touching a dead body under Old Testament law makes you unclean. It's as though death spreads. If I touch something dead, I symbolically become dead, and I have to be washed before I can come back among the, the congregation of the living. That's how it was thought to enter the temple. You're among the living. But Jesus, his cleanness, if you like, his purity is not based in uh, his obedience to the law necessarily, but it overflows from who he is. And so he can touch a dead body like this boy. And rather than him being made unclean by it, his cleanness, his, his God's holiness that is within him flows out, life flows from him and even raises the dead. He is not affected by it, rather he affects those around him. And that is exactly what happens when we come to Jesus. The Bible says that we are spiritually dead. Now, Jews at this time have a much better conception of uh, spiritually dead and how that is not to be too close, too much detached from physical death. We might think of sinfulness as kind of spiritually sick. We're not quite right. The Bible says dead. And physical death is just an outworking of that. And so the fact that Jesus doesn't become symbolically dead, but rather brings physical life, tells us something about who he is, tells us something about what he does to us when we come to him. He brings us back to life from the dead. That's why, for instance, we don't need to worry about the cleanliness laws in the Old Testament. It's not because Jesus just said, ah, I'm done with that. It's because he has made us clean. We do still need to obey the commands to be clean, but we do it, we obey them by coming to Jesus, by being made clean by him. He is the great prophet that all the Old Testament looks to. That is the Jesus that we serve. 
Now, this demands a response from us. The book of Hebrews, chapter 1, starts with these words. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. So God, for years, was speaking to us through mouthpieces, through the prophets. He was saying to us what we needed to hear through them. Verse 2, but now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. That's not simply saying, and he sent another prophet. He's saying he has sent the prophet of all prophets. He has sent the one who has told us everything we need to know and everything we need is in him. He has spoken finally in Jesus. And so we come to Jesus not merely as someone else who has interesting things to say, but as God's final revelation that demands a response to him. You cannot be indifferent to Jesus or the sayings of Jesus. There are many places in the world where the sayings of Jesus are held as quite good. But the person of Jesus is to be taken or left. You cannot divorce the person from the message because he is the final revelation of God. If you like it when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, you have to accept the person who said it. Jesus demands a response. A prophet brings blessings for obedience, for heeding the word and curses for disobedience, for hearing the word and ignoring it. In Acts chapter 3, Peter stands up on Pentecost and he preaches this message. Friends, I realize that what you and your leaders did to Jesus was done in ignorance, but God was fulfilling what all the prophets had foretold about the Messiah, that he must suffer these things. Now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Then the times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord, and he will again send you Jesus, your appointed Messiah. For he must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things, as God promised long ago through his holy prophets. Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. Listen carefully to everything he tells you. Then Moses said, anyone who will not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from God's people. It's easy to take the good things that Jesus says, I want to, to, I want to apply them and like them. But the message is this, anyone who will not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from God's people. Jesus demands a response as this great prophet. But nonetheless, just as then, just as when he looks at the widow, nonetheless now, still, he looks at us with compassion. He knows what our sins deserve. We should know what our sins deserve. But the promise is this, this great prophet, this one that 3,500 years ago was promised, has come. God's final revelation has come. He doesn't come with a rod in one hand ready to punish all of us, but rather he comes and he stands off and his heart is overflowing with compassion. If we come to him, just as the widow, he puts his hand on our shoulder and he says, don't cry. And then we watch as he brings life from the dead. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we stood before you as dead people. Lord Jesus, we stand before you as broken people. But Lord, we have anticipation and expectation because of what your word promises us, 
Lord, we have assurance that when we come to you, you don't meet us with a list of do's and don'ts. You don't meet us with a checklist of things we need to do before you're willing to accept us. But Lord, you are overflowing with life. Our deadness, our brokenness can be touched by you and rather than spreading to you, rather your life flows to us. Lord, teach us to respond to the voice of the great prophet. Teach us to respond to your voice, Jesus. Have compassion on us, we pray. Lord, as we repent of our sins and put to death the dead things in us daily, Lord, we pray that we would do so through your power, the one who has defeated death. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.